0: Phil Moran, pastor at Christ Presbyterian Church, and Jonathan Van Hugan, pastor at Spring United Reformed Church. Now, if you'd like to find out more about us, or catch past broadcasts, or get information about our annual conference, you can find us at ReformationVoice.com. All right, well, welcome to the show again today. It is... Our last day, hopefully, that we're going to, to be talking about dispensationalism. And if you've missed any of the past podcasts and you're like, I don't even know what that is, well, just subscribe to the Gospel for Life and you'll find out what we've been talking about. So today we're going to talk about, we're basically answering the question, who cares? Why is this subject even important? How does it affect the way that we approach the Bible?
1: I'm wondering if our listeners have been asking all week, who cares? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs>
0: but, but, you know, and, and I, I say there are, there are huge ramifications of what you believe in terms of your systematic theology for the Bible, huge ones. I mean, let me just give you one example. And then, brothers, we didn't talk about this off the air, so I don't know where you're at on this. But like when I'm reading the book of Psalms and the, the psalmist is using language like Zion or Jerusalem or Israel or Judah – I recognize that those have historical meaning to them, and I'm not brushing them off. I'm not dismissing them. However, because the New Testament talks about the, the, the true Israel of God and how I'm a an offspring of Abraham, I'm applying those things to myself right away. I see myself. So like Psalm 87 says that the Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places in Jacob. And the imagery there is the gates of Zion is where the people of God gathered in the Old Testament. And the all the dwelling places of Jacob are just all their individual homes. And so what God is saying is that God loves the gathered people of God in a, in a special way that even goes above and beyond the, the individual dwelling places where they're worshiping God on their own. Now, I have applied that to our church family several times. That the Lord loves the gates of Zion. The Lord loves the gathering mm-hmm. of God's people. And I don't yeah. think that's an inappropriate way to interpret that verse. And that's how I think all the Psalms should be interpreted. But I think if you take a dispensational view, you have to take this radical note that he's talking about Israel here and not the church. Well, that just cuts off, you know, the biggest worship book
2: <laughs> yes.
0: from my ability to even worship God and the church's ability to worship God.
2: Right.
1: I I think that, to me, is the biggest area that um, I grew up in dispensational circles, and I think what I found was that, yeah, we read the Old Testament, but I don't know if we really read it well, um, that we didn't see it as pointing us to Jesus Christ. I don't think I understood the oneness of the Bible, how interconnected it is. It's fun um, being in a Reformed church in the fact that my kids will come home and say, Dad, did you did you use our Sunday school lesson to form your sermon today? Because so much connected to what we learned in class. And I said, welcome to the beauty of um, what I would consider to be a right interpretation of the word of God, that it's all interconnected. Mm -hmm. That you can't hardly talk about one part where you're not somehow talking about another. And if we divide it up into different, Epochs and eras and dispensations, we lose this wonderful unity and connectedness of the Word. That when you begin to see just how beautiful it all flows together, um, you just give away so much ri- richness if you lop it off into to different segments.
2: Right, and and I also think, although you know, the Bible certainly, we, we lose a lot of the richness of the Bible if we don't see that. Um, Throughout the Bible, it is speaking to our lives today. It is speaking to our world today. Um, It is not, uh, whether fortunately or unfortunately, the Bible is not showing us a blow-by-blow account of how history is going to play out. Now, obviously, there are great central truths that we know are, are, are going to occur. Christ is going to return uh no one, no one here on this radio program, uh, or I should say among the, the three of us here in this studio, we agree on that. Christ is going to return. He's going to return physically, bodily, visibly, in great power and glory. Um, but I think uh, dispensationalism treats a lot of biblical literature, and particularly the apocalyptic literature like Daniel in the book of Revelation, Treats it as a sort of a movie of the future that, or, or, or pictures of the future that need to be deciphered, and they're kind of in a code that we can decipher. And, and by the way, they are written in code. Apocalyptic is, is not easy to understand. But uh, I don't think we're to look at them as a blow-by-blow, year-by-year account of the future. Um, in general terms, Yes. Uh, But mostly they are about the moment in which we live, and they are about the moment in which Christians have always lived. They had meaning in the first century when the the first readers of Revelation, when when John first gave this revelation to the church in the end of the first century. And it's had significance for every succeeding generation of Christians. It has significance for us today, whether Christ returns tomorrow or whether he returns 100,000 years from now. Uh, It has meaning for right now, today.
0: That's right. I think it affects – so we're asking the question today is how does your view of the Bible, and we're specifically talking about dispensationalism, affect practical theology? And I would just say I gave the example of the Psalms earlier, but I think it also affects the way that you read the Gospels themselves. Um, For instance, if you you adopt the dispensational view, then that – what happened in the Gospels was really the, the last dispensation uh, up until the point where Jesus died on the cross, rose from the dead, um, and that's the new dispensation of grace. And so often what you see is that when Jesus is interacting, especially with like, you know, the rich young ruler in, in Matthew 19, uh, the rich young ruler asked Jesus, What must I, you know, what good thing must I do to be saved? How did Jesus answer the rich young ruler? He, he didn't say, you know, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. He didn't say some of those answers that Paul gave, like, for instance, in the book of Acts. And what I've heard from dispensational teachers is that, well, the reason why Jesus gave that answer is because that was in the old dispensation. Well, that's a, a pretty bad way to interpret that passage. Yeah,
2: it, it misses what, that entirely misses what Jesus is doing with the rich young man. Yeah. Um,
0: another example is like when you get to the Sermon on the Mount um, dispensationalists will tend to say, well, that's the constitution of the kingdom. That's what Jesus is teaching here applies to the, 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 literal thousand year reign of Christ after the seven year tribulation. Well, then you've just, you've just made three chapters of the Bible completely irrelevant for life today.
2: Yeah. And, and let us off the hook pretty easy, by the way, um, <laughs> yeah. but just from some pretty challenging teaching that Jesus gave us and he meant it.
0: Right. And so that has huge bearings, not only on how you interpret the Bible, but how you
1: live your
2: life. Yeah.
1: And I just think that, for me, the great storyline of the Word of God is that there are two kingdoms. There's good versus evil. There's a great promise of God that good will overcome, that through the death and resurrection of of Jesus Christ, he has defeated the forces of evil of evil, that there's some mopping up to do, but the great battle has been won, and we're looking forward to the, the culmination of um, the completeness of the victory that Jesus Christ has won. Um, but for me, then, it becomes a book of hope, a book of comfort. Um, I, I know um, how to interpret the the events of, of the day because I know it's really ultimately about the seed of the serpent versus the seed of the woman. It, it's about those that are in the kingdom of God versus the kingdom and, and the children of the devil, um, it, it, it becomes a pretty easy book to see that it's really about Psalm 2, um, Jesus Christ reigning. Um, are you going to submit to his reign or not? And really what the storyline of the, of the book of Revelation is that throughout the church age, there are those that are opposed to the king, but the king is coming. And so for me, I grew up in a dispensational um, church that it fostered a lot of fear um, and doubts. Um, but I don't think we're supposed to live in fear. I think the whole tenor of the scripture is it's a book of hope. it's a book of comfort, it's a book of triumph. and I want to read it that way cover to cover. Um,
2: right. And the book of Revelation and you know let's be honest, the book of Revelation is full of really scary images. I remember the first time that I read it, I think I was about 16 years old, and it scared the bejabbers out of me um, because it is filled with pretty wild images. But when you learn how to interpret those images, when you learn uh, the Old Testament uh, connection between, uh, to many of those images, when you learn um, what apocalyptic literature is all about, The entire book of Revelation is not written to terrify, it is written to comfort. And particularly it's written to persecuted believers. John was persecuted himself. He was imprisoned on the Isle of Patmos when this revelation was given to him. And he um, was writing to, when he wrote it down, he was writing to persecuted (coughs) believers to give them hope, to remind them that God's victory had already been won on the cross of Jesus and with his shed blood and with his resurrection the victory over evil was already won so you who are under persecution hang in there god has already won the the end is not in doubt
0: maybe one more from my own experience, um, I also grew up in a dispensational
1: church Russ, and I remember which just, I would say was very biblical and very strong in so many things so yep. i don't want to give the impression that I right. grew the day that I was born into a, uh, a dispensational yep. background
0: yep right. yeah well, I agree i mean i I came to know Christ um in the church I grew up in, but one of the one of the practical fallouts of holding to the seven year um Rapture, well, not so much, yeah, the the pre trib rapture is first of all just say, where do you actually find that in the Bible? But secondly, I actually think it takes the urgency off of, um, Evangelism a little bit at least it did for me because one of the apologetics that I would use to my unbelieving friends is okay well wait you know if if you don't believe me now then there's a rapture coming and when all these things fall out then you should believe and it it moves the impetus of belief off of the gospel itself off of Christ itself onto signs and these spectacular things in which it's it, it's it's built on on some presuppositions that you're actually having to bring the text I would just challenge you know if if you're if this is your view and you feel a little attacked a little assaulted today on the radio i hope that's not it but let me just ask you this if you really believe in a in a, a a pre-trib rapture where would you actually go in scripture to find that i mean what is your verse what is your passage if if it if it's such a a truth that's an undeniable truth then it needs to be something that's very clear from scripture and i would just i would just kind of leave that with you i mean where would you point to?
1: Yeah, and what I would emphasize and said is that the details of the second coming of Christ really are not that important, and I think the New Testament writers take that approach, that they teach it frequently, but they teach it in detail never. Right. And the reason why is that the call of the New Testament, every time that you have teaching on the second coming, the parousia of Jesus Christ, Every time, it's in the context of a call to holy living. Mm -hmm. So what the point of the Scriptures is, live in anticipation of the great day. Live ready. Live well. Live as an outgrowth of your union with Christ. And the return of Jesus Christ, that doesn't matter to us in the fact that we can't change that. It won't happen because somehow we do something to bring it about, it will happen because the father will send his son. Mm -hmm. And until then we have to live ready Mm -hmm. and live well. Yeah. Just to back up what you just said, second
0: Peter chapter three, verse 11, right after Peter talks about Christ coming back in judgment, he says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? Listen, brothers and sisters, if your your end times theology only prom- promotes speculation and doesn't promote holy living, then maybe you should go back to the drawing board, go back to the scriptures and see what the scriptures actually teach about these things. Um, again, a good source, I think, would be Christ in the Future by uh, Dr. Cornelius Venema. He's our speaker coming up at this year's conference. you want to say something real quick?
1: Keith Matheson also wrote Rightly Dividing the People of God. It's a book on dispensationalism as well. Cool. Thanks for the source.
0: Well, we've enjoyed speaking with you this week, and uh, we'll see you next time.